It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Solutions for the opioid epidemic. Sam Quinones. And then I realized, well, the reason these guys have such a big market for their heroin is because of this change in our prescribing practices by doctors all across the country. Because these, these drugs are, are chemically very, very similar. They're all derived from the opium poppy. Their highs are the same. They're very good painkillers, but they're also extraordinarily addictive. They have the same withdrawal symptoms as heroin does. So heroin is a replacement drug for them if you can find it cheaper. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Jim, it's hard to overestimate the destruction, the suffering, the pain caused by America's opioid epidemic. It's an addiction crisis like no other the country has faced. Yeah, and it's really striking how it didn't really become really front and center in the national conversation until surprisingly recently, even though it's been going on for such a long time. And maybe that's because the media is based in big cities like New York and Los Angeles and Washington. And this is happening out somewhere else. Absolutely. Since 1999, 200,000 Americans have died of overdoses related to OxyContin and other prescription opioids. Right. So let's take a deeper dive into this problem and see if we can come up with some solutions. We're speaking today with journalist Sam Quinones, author of the highly praised book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. It's a story that began in the 1990s with Purdue Pharma's marketing of OxyContin, a new treatment for pain that proved to be highly addictive, but it also involves a massive influx of black tar heroin. Sam Quinones joins us via Skype from Los Angeles on very short notice. Sam, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You say this crisis began because we sought easy answers to a complicated problem, pain management. Uh, Tell us more. Well, yes, I think uh, Americans in general began to want easy, uncomplicated solutions to things. And and I think this spread over into uh, medicine and how we viewed medical treatment. And and, uh, one of the most complicated things that doctors have to do is treat our pain. And, And so an easy answer, because also we were being told that these pills were now known to be virtually non addictive when used to treat pain. These are pills that derive from the opium poppies. And some of this research that suggested that they weren't particularly addictive 
you looked back and it found out it was based on some extremely sketchy reporting. Right. There was no scientific basis for this idea. And that what they were basing it on were, were a few very sketchy reports. They were not studies by any means. One was actually a letter to the editor, but yet were taken by these pain specialists and pharmaceutical companies who were making this argument uh, in the late 1990s as proof that science now knew that these pills were somehow non-addictive when used to treat pain. Pain is a deep mystery. It's very complicated to deal with. It's as much as art as it is a science, is my understanding. But one of the things that, that, that really comes across as you talk with doctors about this is that a, a lot of pain management would be far easier if Americans made better consumer choices of what they consumed and their exercise. And um, also, during these years, doctors in general had fewer, fewer strategies they could employ because the insurance companies stopped reimbursing for things like acupuncture and uh, marital counseling, which can, which can sometimes be part of a person's pain. Can, can we just simply then blame aggressive marketing by the drug companies, particularly uh, Purdue Pharma, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, I think certainly that's one place you might look, but I also believe it is more complicated than that. I believe Americans wanted this, and they, they pestered their doctors and the doctors, you know, the doctor-patient relationship is a very delicate uh, thing. And doctors are there trying very hard, most of them, to help their patients and wanting to be liked and wanting to be helpful. And in many cases over the last couple of decades, doctors came to be measured by various patient satisfaction surveys as well, right? And if you're – some of the questions might, exactly. might include things like, did the hospital or the, or the staff do everything they could to help you with your pain – and doctors who got bad scores on those, they could actually be hurt in their compensation. Uh, absolutely. That was, a, that was a lever through which patients essentially extorted pills from doctors, if you ask me. It became that, I would say. Uh, certainly as, as evaluations, they're virtually pointless. All they ask is a few questions, one of them being when you ask. But it doesn't really give you any data upon which to improve the appointment or improve the hospital service. And patients, particularly the ones who were most insistent on getting these pills, were, were demanding and they would use those evaluations. And lots of doctors mentioned this. This is not something that's isolated. It's all across the country as doctors and hospitals uh, were increasingly forced to kind of toe the line when it comes to these evaluations. To my mind, it's one of the things we could change, really. Now, the opioid epidemic began with these prescription painkillers, but then yep. many people got hooked on illegal drugs, such as heroin. C correct. And, and that, that happened for a variety of reasons. One was that their doctors would see that they were out of control in their use of pills and would stop prescribing. Others, they would lose their insurance and not have any money to pay for the pills. And others would, uh, would simply get addicted and, and switch to heroin because they just wanted a, a slightly more powerful high. But all of these pills were prescribed to somebody, whether you bought them legitimately or you bought them on the street. So the, the enormous new supply that the doctors are prescribing, a lot of that leaks its way out onto the streets and makes up a black market. But that's unsustainable. That is unsustainable because these pills on the street, the black market for them is dollar a milligram, usually. And you're doing 100, 200, 300 milligrams a day that you can't pay that much, 100, 200, 300 dollars a day. So, so people switched 
to uh, to heroin, and that's where our heroin market had also shifted. Tell us about how you first came across this dimension of this crisis. I started this story really because I was interested in why heroin traffickers from Mexico would be doing such good business. I just assumed that heroin was a drug that no one would ever want to do again. I thought it was almost going to be extinct. All of a sudden, they're seizing more heroin than ever at the border. There's more use. And so I got into it because I wanted to write about Mexican heroin traffickers. And then I realized, well, the reason these guys have such a big market for their heroin is because of this change in our prescribing practices by doctors all across the country. But I I still don't quite understand this. Why would people go from um, black market painkillers or or legitimate prescription drugs to heroin? I mean, what's is there a similar high? Because these these drugs are, are chemically very, very similar. They're all derived from the opium poppy. Their highs are the same. They're very good painkillers, but they're also extraordinarily addictive. They have the same withdrawal symptoms as heroin does. So heroin is a replacement drug for them if you can find it cheaper. Is it usually cheaper? Is that the the big incentive for people to switch over? That was another part of this story, that in the 1980s, it became just remarkably cheaper than it ever had been. And that was because our heroin market stopped being supplied by the Far East, by Turkey, by Burma, Thailand, those countries. And, and that, that heroin was really outcompeted by the heroin coming from Mexico and from Colombia, really today mostly Mexico. It gets here much quicker, much shorter distance, and therefore is much, much cheaper. Before we talk about solutions, I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about what this epidemic has done, not only to families, but to communities. Tell us about a city you wrote about, Portsmouth, Ohio. Uh, Yeah, this has destroyed families, destroyed um, many parts of this country, just ripped it apart. Uh, I fastened on it because it was the place where they invented the, the pill mill, which is a pain clinic in which you're really just selling prescriptions. There's no medical diagnosis. But the history of Portsmouth that led to this is that it used to be a, a real strong industrial town making steel, shoes, a variety of things. And a lot of people, 50,000 people, a strong, vibrant Main Street, locally owned shops. All of that slowly begins to just fade away as the jobs leave, as the factories leave as half the population leaves. It se- always seemed to me that just as the Indians were, were uh, very vulnerable to smallpox when, when the Europeans came over, so too folks who remained in Portsmouth were, were very vulnerable to this, to this horrible scourge that was then visited on them because they were right in the area where these pills were first promoted by pharmaceutical companies. And a whole generation or two really, of people in Portsmouth, Ohio, got addicted, and, um, and it, it killed many people. It destroyed families. It really destroyed a lot of economic activity. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a horrible plague that was visited on this town. Our guest is Sam Quinones, uh, the author of the book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And this is How Do We Fix It? Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So let's talk about what we can do in terms of treatment. And what have you seen that looks promising? Uh, I think one place that we really need to look is jail. Uh, As we have entered this scourge, this plague, this epidemic, it's a cliche now to say that we uh, cannot arrest our way out of this, which implies that we, we are going to treat our way out of this, which I doubt is going to be possible. But nevertheless, what that means is we need to then expand treatment. Well, most people don't want a treatment facility in their neighborhood, and it takes a long time to site and build, and, and they're costly. And by the time you've got a, certainly if it's private, by the time you've got to build, the folks who, who most need it can't afford it because they don't have insurance anymore. So, so where do we look? If we need it quick, cheap, easy to build or already built, where do we look? And I would argue that one place we should look and is being looked at is jail. Jail's been done one way, badly for many, many, many years, which is to say we put people in jail. It's a parking lot for humans, boring beyond words, predatory at times, bartering, a lot of weird sexual stuff from time to time. All of this very tense, very stressful. And think of what happens. An addict gets off the street, detoxes, gets all those drugs out of his system, is finally thinking clearly, realizes that his his girlfriend has left the state with their daughter. Mom won't take the phone call. There's, there's this clarity of, of what he has done becomes clear as soon as he detoxes. And it's at that very moment, usually of great contrition, that we put that guy into a jail that is boring beyond words, predatory, stressful, a lot of bartering, a lot of gang stuff, a lot of violence, all that. That is the worst place to put that guy. I think that we need to rethink jail in in America. So, so what do we today? do? Yeah, yeah. Talk talk about what's going on in Kentucky because that is an example of a, of a solution or at least a way forward, right? Sure. The, the way I the the way I got onto this was I visited the jail in Kenton County. As it turns out, a, a good twenty five jails in in Kentucky are doing this, and they have transformed a pod, a 70-man pod is what I saw, into a full-time rehabilitation clinic. Pretty much every service that you would get in a private outside treatment center, you're getting at this one pod. You, you have to volunteer, but you wake up in the morning, 8 a.m., you make your bed military style, and for the rest of the day, you're not sitting around watching TV, you're not sleeping for 10 hours a day, you are 
working on your recovery. Criminal addictive thinking classes, GED classes, working out, time for prayer meditation, NA meetings. And NA meetings, meaning uh, Narcotics Anonymous? Yes, right. And so what you see is something I've never seen in a jail, I've been in a few jails in my life, is an attitude of nurturing. Jails have not been nurturing places. They are brutal, they're predatory, they're boring, they are anything but nurturing. But in this pot, you're seeing nurturing places, which by that I mean guys helping each other forward. Come on, brother, we're in this together. There's not the same preying on people who show weakness. You start crying in an NA meeting, you are not going to be raped. I saw a guy stand up at a meeting and read a poem. Never would you be able to read a poem in a regular jail. It, you, you'd, be, you'd be mincemeat. Right. So what happens to these inmates when they get back on the street? How is the program working in terms of recidivism? I think it's working better than the alternative. It is not, of course, a panacea. There is no panacea to this. And so these are extraordinarily enslaving drugs we're talking about. They make life torment for the people. And so some people, yes, get out and they don't quite make it. Um, I should add that this jail also offers uh, re-entry services, so jobs, sober living houses, Vivitrol, which keeps you from overdosing. They, they offer these services as well. Some people don't make it, uh, but I think they've done studies on, on, on those folks who have left, and there are higher incidences of the things that would keep you from relapsing. There's better connectivity with family, greater likelihood of being employed, greater likelihood of living with your family, a variety of things like this they've seen. It, it, works, it works very well. Some people are, are ready to make it work. Other people get out and they, they struggle. I would say, that, however, that it seems to me self-evident that this is a better way of using taxpayer money than the old way, which is almost pushing people to, to relapse, to, to run straight to the dope dealer's house as soon as you get out of jail because it is so stressful. Another area is is drug courts um i know there's an example in in buffalo new york for example are are they making a a difference in some places oh i think so i think this is a recognition that a lot of people's crime is directly related to their addiction and the best drug courts require a significant accountability uh, on the part of the uh, person who's who's asking for his or her record to be expunged or a felony to be dropped to a misdemeanor. Um, And that means you have to be always going to meetings, you have to have a mentor, you have to be uh, looking for work, you have to be doing all these things, you have to be meeting these. But in in return, you are not treated as a a festering sore, you are treated as a human being, you are treated with uh, an interest in your best outcome. Uh, which is what I've seen in some of the best um, drug courts. Addiction recovery, in my interviewing with people involved in it, it, it requires accountability. You must be meeting standards, and that's it's when you stop meeting those standards that, that problems begin right, to rise. Right. So one of the themes that you've expressed is that, that there's not just one solution. It's going to be a suite of solutions. And what I'm hearing from you is that's also true for individual patients. It's not enough just to have yes. a, a, you know one type of therapy. This is a whole life right. problem, and so something that integrates having a job and some kind of 
social support as well as drug treatment. All those things have to go hand in hand. Absolutely. You know, I was in a in a clinic, um, a, a neonatal clinic where a lot of infants have been born and are addicted and are withdrawing. You know, and the nurse said to me, um, uh, "Do you know uh, what uh, these infants need more than anything?" And I said, uh, "No, what's that?" And she said, uh, "Cuddling. They need to be cuddled." What does that mean for an addict? What it means is every addict cannot go it alone. You need to be surrounded by services and people who can make you feel as if you're not in it alone, who you can turn to when maybe things get hard, who, who are with you, that there's this community of, of, of help around you, mentors and what have you, that will help you through that. Trying to do this alone is, is uh, disastrous. It almost never works. But you, you understand as you dig into this story and this whole problem that we have nationwide, that this is a story of isolation versus community. The, respo- the, the reason we got into this is because as Americans, we're extraordinarily isolated, both economically, physically, geographically, politically, going on and on and on. And the response, it would seem logical to me that the best response would therefore be community. By that, I mean a variety of approaches to addiction, a variety of approaches to prevention using all the different ways and people we have in a certain county or town, uh, leveraging those energies, leveraging those, those um, talents and that expertise into something. We have not been doing that. We've been working in silos, every one of us, uh, and so many agencies, so many groups, so many nonprofits will just work alone. And to me, it feels like the overarching idea, a theme to this problem is that we must begin to start breaking down those silos and working together and leveraging all that energy and leveraging all that talent. It's out there, but we have, we have not, you know, in, in isolation, all problems seem insoluble. And, and, hmm? and, and speaking of silos, I mean, what can most of us do? One thing that, that pops out here is so many of us, after operations, have maybe a lot of stuff in our medicine cabinets. Yeah. Pill disposal. Is that part of, of, of what we should be talking about? Uh, of course it is. We have these uh, massive amounts of drugs out there, and they get, they get stolen. They get diverted. Kids come over to the house. They take them. Whatever it is, there's a million different ways these drugs get get diverted and create the black market that we have today. Remember, all of these drugs, virtually all of these drugs were prescribed to someone at some time. Right. So, Sam, you've, you've seen some of the, the worst of America and some of the saddest stories that are happening in our society today. You've also seen some really important and inspiring work and inspiring people. And you've spent a few years on this huge crisis uh, in writing your book, are you optimistic? There's reasons for optimism and pessimism, but I, I do believe that this is one of the great moments of our history, honestly, that can show us that by coming together as Americans, forgetting the polarization that is so much on display on, on this 24-hour news, cable news that we seem to, to love to endure, and coming together as Americans, you see the great reasons for optimism in counties where people are just putting that stuff aside and deciding they're going to be working together and participating in different groups that you might not think involved in an anti-drug problem, you know, get involved. PTAs, trainers, little leagues, Kiwanis, churches, et cetera, 
all these different groups kind of coming together, that's where you see the wonderful, beautiful, exhilarating part of this country. Uh, you can see a whole bunch of other not so exhilarating parts in this issue. But this issue allows us the opportunity to come together as Americans, to put behind us all that crud that is force fed to us on 24 hour news and a variety of other ways and, and, and become Americans in community. Again, we have destroyed community in this country in a million different ways all across the country. And heroin is what you get when you do that. Sam Quinones, um, some, some kind of beautiful remarks there. In, in, in closing, thank you. Uh, the author of Dreamland, uh, thanks for joining us. Certainly my pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. There were so many moving moments in this interview, but for me, when Sam Quinones said, it's about isolation versus community. I think he was really on to something. And then arguing that because this is so complicated, it has to involve many different parts of the community, from voluntary organizations to social workers to obviously doctors, and also to patients and to how we talk to our doctors. Well, I know this is a this is a favorite sort of theme of yours is that, you know, we do need individual responsibility. It sounds harsh, but there is a um, there's a role for the choices that people make before. Obviously, once people are addicted, you know, they need help. Nobody's going to solve that on their own. But the path that gets them to becoming in that position you know, people do have a role in that. And um, he talked a lot about, you know, there's certain kinds of chronic pain that have a lot of social elements to it. If you're unemployed and you have a back problem, that back problem is a lot more likely to endure and, uh, and, and not go away. And then if you can get, um, you know, if you're getting a steady supply of pills for that, maybe you're not as quick to go to the physical therapy or, or to do the work that you need to do um, to, to handle that problem. As he was saying, it's so much easier to go for the pills. So there's a role for all different aspects of society, but also for individuals to you know, make the choices that help reduce the likelihood of falling into this kind of condition. Personal accountability is crucial to the success of any program. It's a couple of things he didn't talk about, and this show is not going to deal as much with policy as perhaps it might in this. But but I do think there's there's a role to, for instance, uh, the federal government saying to insurance companies, you got to make safer alternatives to opioids less expensive than they are today. Right, right. Here's where I come back to a lot of these issues. It's very easy to demonize people, demonize the doctors, the evil drug companies, and, the, and believe, honestly, the drug companies do have a lot to answer for, you know, to demonize the addicts. But every social problem also has incentives, many of which might seem pretty harmless. He talked about those uh, doctor evaluation surveys people fill out. Well, that seems like a good idea. I mean, if five years ago, if you talked to people said, like, should doctors be evaluated on the quality of the service? Sure, empower the patients. And then you see these incentives have 
these unexpected negative consequences. So we need to really make sure we get in there and change the incentive system so we're not encouraging them to overprescribe, encouraging patients to, uh, to, or giving patients the power to coerce doctors in that way. These are not solutions to the whole problem, but these are small things that can contribute. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And our music is composed by Lou Stravinsky. We are a production of Davies Content. Uh, Davies Content makes digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening, as always. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.